Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. This episode brings us to West Covina, California in the late 1950s. These days, West Covina is solidly middle class and suburban, but 60 plus years ago, West Covina was a buzzy suburb full of upper middle class doctors and lawyers, their families, and their sprawling properties. Back in the 40s and the 50s, it was a welcome retreat from the busy city life of L.A. for the rich and almost famous. The country club scene in West Covina was turned upside down one summer night in July of 1959 when a love triangle between a married prominent doctor and his secretary-turned-mistress ended in murder. Dr. Bernard Finch lived with his wife, Barbara, and their two children in a hilltop house on a sprawling estate. Dr. Finch had a successful surgical center in West Covina that funded his lavish lifestyle that he shared with his family. Their house was stunning. The cars in the driveway were high-end, and he and Barbara had risen in the ranks of the upper crust of the local social scene. From the outside, their life looked perfect, but there was trouble bubbling just under the surface. The two had originally met as neighbors and had been married since 1951. It was the second marriage for both of them. But Finch had a bad habit of hiring and then dating the young, beautiful women at his practice, and he didn't let his eight-year marriage to Barbara get in his way. Barbara had a child from her previous marriage, and the two welcomed a second child together in 1953. Their marriage worked for a while, but over time, building resentments chiseled at the foundation of their relationship. If Barbara knew about his extramarital affairs, they didn't cause her to leave Finch or file for divorce. In the years since their son was born, Barbara and Finch began to drift apart. Publicly, they held together a united front, keeping up their friendly tennis matches and dinner dates with friends. But according to Finch, their marriage was purely for appearances and financial stability. At the time, California had strict property laws, and a divorce would be devastating to Finch's accumulated wealth. If he left Barbara, he would only walk away with half. If his extramarital affairs were accounted in this equation, his takeaway would be even less. Finch would later say that their marriage had morphed into something mutually beneficial, and each of them could do what they wanted as long as neither of them publicly embarrassed each other. According to Finch, that was how the two existed for some time. 
The arrangement seemed to work for the most part. Finch kept his finances intact and felt free to pursue relationships with other women. He dated several women who worked in his medical office, but none of the relationships seemed particularly serious. In 1955, 18-year-old Carol Trigoff was hired as a secretary working in the medical center. At first, she did not have much interaction directly with Finch, but the redhead was young and beautiful, which was exactly Finch's type. According to the people who worked there at the time, the extramarital relationships between the doctor and employees was known, but the office stayed fairly professional during working hours. And plus, although Carol was very young, she was a married woman herself. She had married her high school sweetheart Jimmy, but their relationship had soured after they struck out on their own. In 1956, Carol became Finch's personal secretary, and suddenly the two were spending more and more time together. Their relationship reportedly did not start right away, but eventually Finch asked Carol to lunch one afternoon, and the two went alone. From then on, Finch and Carol started a relationship which was unbeknownst to Barbara. It quickly became clear that this was more than a physical relationship, and despite the sizable age difference, the two were quite smitten with each other. Eventually, Finch rented a small apartment in a nearby city where the two could be alone and spend more time together. He told Carol all about his arrangement with his wife, and that their marriage was for show, and that love had shown itself out of their relationship many years ago. This explanation worked for Carol, and soon the two were regularly seeing each other in their own private getaway. Carol realized her marriage to Jimmy was not salvageable, but made no moves to end it. Barbara, who had become suspicious about her husband's whereabouts after increasing absences outside of work hours, had her husband followed in 1958 and the secret apartment and the years-long affair was quickly uncovered. Barbara took no delay in calling up Jimmy and letting him know about Carol and Finch's relationship. Jimmy was reportedly caught off guard by the cheating. The couple had grown apart, but he didn't think that infidelity had entered the equation. He was livid when he confronted Carol and allegedly struck her across the face during an argument. Carol responded by moving in with her father and filing for divorce. The couple was young and did not have much in the way of shared assets, so their divorce would be more or less uncomplicated, but the same could not be said for the Finches. With proof of adultery, Barbara stood to easily walk away with the majority of their wealth. After years of suspected cheating, Barbara finally had solid, irrefutable proof that would secure her financial future and stick it to the man who spent much of their marriage running around town with different women while she cared for their children at home. Despite being found out, Carol and Finch did not end their affair. Finch gave up their secret apartment as a show to Barbara, but simply turned around and rented another one. There were also reportedly several instances of Carol showing up at public places where Finch and Barbara were together, 
running into her husband's girlfriend in public places was far too much disrespect for Barbara to tolerate, and in January of 1959, she retained a divorce lawyer. She was advised to hire a private investigator to document ongoing proof of Finch's infidelity. Eventually, Finch caught on to the fact that he was being followed, and the ensuing confrontation and argument with Barbara resulted in her filing for divorce in the spring of 1959. The divorce requested immediate spousal and child support, which was just a taste of what Finch knew was to come. He knew that his wife had grounds to walk away with close to everything, and he had spent years trying to prevent that from happening. Barbara remained in their home, and according to articles written at the time, she confided that she was scared of what Finch would do if he lost control of their finances. But that was exactly what happened as soon as Barbara filed for divorce. Much of their shared fortune was property or in a joint bank account, which was frozen unless the two were in agreement of what the money would be used for. This fueled a tense situation, which was made worse when the divorce bills started rolling in. Suddenly, Finch was looking at paying child support, alimony, legal fees for both parties, and court costs. One moment, Finch was having his cake and eating it too, and the next he was effectively broke and his access to his money was at the mercy of his angry, soon-to-be ex-wife, who had finally had enough. 
While in Vegas, the story begins to take a dark turn. During one of their frequent visits, the two allegedly decided that their best course of action was to hire someone to murder Barbara. Then the divorce proceedings would end and Finch would stop bleeding cash and retain the rest of their fortune for himself. In June of 1959, a man named Jack Cody accepted an offer from Carol to murder Barbara in exchange for $1,000. $1,000 in 1959 is just under $9,000 in today's money, but still a relatively small amount of money to be paid in exchange for murder. Jack accepted the offer, took the money, but never followed through with the plan. Then, on July 18, 1959, after spending the day together in Las Vegas, Finch and Carol decided to drive to West Covina. In the back of Carol's car was a suitcase filled with a revolver, extra bullets, a knife, rope, and various pills. The two arrived at the Finch home at 10.30 p.m. and waited outside for Barbara to come home. Barbara didn't see the two as she pulled her car into the garage, and Finch came up behind her and struck her over the head with the pistol he had in the suitcase. Finch hit Barbara so hard in the head that she fractured her skull in two places. She was bleeding heavily from the head wound, but she was able to recover enough to try and fight Finch off. Carol, seeing the shift from a hypothetical situation to a reality, fled from the garage and hid in the bushes on the property. The struggle between Finch and Barbara continued until their children's nanny, Marie, burst into the garage from the house. She was looking for the source of the noise and was met with a shocking scene. Barbara, clearly injured, was lying on the floor of the garage, bleeding profusely from her head. Finch was standing over her, staring at Marie, caught off guard by her interruption. He lunged at Marie and attempted to knock her unconscious by hitting her head against the wall. Finch then ordered her to get into Barbara's car that had been parked in the garage, and Marie told him no. Finch ordered Barbara into the car, and she got into the passenger seat. Again, Finch looked at Marie and told her that she needed to get into the car, and when she refused, he replied, If you don't get in the car, I'll kill you. Then suddenly, and despite being seriously injured, Barbara opened the car door and ran out of the garage. Finch followed, and both of them disappeared from Marie's sight. Marie heard Barbara yelling for help from somewhere in the yard, and then she heard a gunshot. Marie went back inside, locked the door, and called 911 to report what had just happened. The whole time, Carol stayed in the bushes, where she had been hiding since Finch first struck Barbara in the garage. After some time, she quietly left her hiding place, got into her car, which had been parked down the street, and drove back to Las Vegas. Police arrived at the scene to find Barbara dead from a gunshot wound to the back, presumably as she tried to run away from her attacker. Inside the home, police found a terrified and injured Marie 
and Barbara's two children. Finch fled the scene and made his way back to Vegas alone. Carol arrived after him and the two were reunited briefly before Finch was arrested, presumably after Maria was able to identify him as the perpetrator from the night before. Bernard Finch was charged with the murder of his wife Barbara and extradited back from Nevada to Los Angeles County. Carol remained by his side. Then the story of Finch and Carol's affair quickly unraveled, and soon the murder was being tried in the court of public opinion. Carol even attended Finch's first hearing, which was packed with spectators, and caused a commotion herself when she was arrested and charged with accessory to murder at the end of the hearing. The sensational story gripped the headlines and was the hot topic of gossip at the country club that the Finches once frequented. It had all the trappings of a classic infidelity story, the older wealthy man and the younger other woman, but with a murderous plot twist. And the morbid interest in the story only increased in intensity as more details came out during the trial. The trial began five months later, in early January 1960, at the Los Angeles County Courthouse. The prosecution first called the children's nanny Marie to the stand to testify about the events of July 18th. Marie recounted the events of the murder and how Finch attacked and threatened her as well. She painted a vivid and disturbing picture for the jury, and it was clear early on that the defense would need to do a lot of damage control to repair Finch's reputation with the jury. Then Marie testified to events that happened before the night of the murder. She spelled out, no uncertain terms, that Finch was routinely physically and verbally abusive to Barbara. Marie was Barbara's confidant to some extent, and in addition to witnessing instances of abuse, Barbara shared her fear that one day Finch would really hurt her. The prosecution was also able to put Jack Cody, the man that Finch and Carol paid in their original murder for hire plot, on the stand. Jack testified that he was approached first by Carol, and she told him that Finch would pay him in exchange for murdering Barbara. He said that he followed through with the planning stages and he accepted the money, but never intended to deliver on his end of the deal. He did provide a stunning line to the courtroom during his testimony when he was quoting a conversation that he had with Carol where she allegedly said, Jack, you can back out, but if you don't do it, the doctor will, and if he doesn't do it, then I will. The prosecution called a few other witnesses who were able to testify to Barbara's fear of Finch and others with knowledge of the inner workings of Finch and Barbara's marriage and Finch and Carol's affair. By the time the prosecution rested, it was clear that the defense was going to have to make up some serious ground if they wanted to recover and have the two acquitted, but they honestly didn't have that much to work with. The defense had little choice but to put Finch on the stand to testify and try and clear his name. They questioned him about the night of the murder, and he recounted the scene that Marie did, but from his perspective. 
he said that he did go to the home that he shared with Barbara on the night of the murder, and he admitted that he went there with Carol. He saw Barbara drive into the garage, and he confronted her inside. Once Barbara realized that it was Finch, he said that she pulled a gun out of her purse and pointed it at him. He said that he tried to take the gun, and during the struggle, Barbara screamed for Marie, who ran into the garage just after Finch pistol-whipped Barbara. Finch acknowledged that the scene from Marie's perspective probably looked like Finch was the aggressor, but he said he only hit Barbara to keep her from attacking him. He also claimed that he did not attack Marie, he was just trying to calm her down. Then, when Barbara ran from the garage, he admitted that he ran after her. As he ran, he said he decided to throw the gun, and as he did so, he said that the gun accidentally discharged and by chance hit Barbara square in the back and she collapsed. He ran to her and realized that she was still alive but gravely injured. According to Finch, the following conversation took place as Barbara lay dying. She told him that she had been shot in the chest, and he told her that he was going to get an ambulance to help her. Then he said that Barbara apologized to him, saying that she should have listened. He told her that he had to get her to the hospital, and she replied that he needed to take care of the kids. He said he then felt for a pulse, but he couldn't find one. I didn't find any mention of any life-saving measures he took while he and Barbara were on the lawn, which is something that I find odd considering that he was a doctor. His recounting of the events was considered by most to be odd. How was it that Barbara went from pulling a gun on Finch in the garage to being shot by him, either on accident or on purpose, and then apologizing to him as she lay dying? especially when you consider that they were in the middle of a nasty divorce with a large amount of money at play. But Finch spent several days on the stand being cross-examined, and he stuck to his story no matter how many holes the prosecution tried to poke in his testimony. The prosecution was able to further undermine his character by forcing him to testify about his multiple affairs. In the end, Finch came across as a liar sticking to an implausible story, and as someone who spent the majority of his marriage stepping out on his wife. And then, when she finally had enough and threatened his finances with divorce, he killed her. Carol also testified in her own defense, and it did not have a positive impact on her case. She was seen by the public as the other woman, and the only positive thing that news articles at the time focused on was her good looks, which didn't do much to help her in court. She testified that the confrontation was originally only supposed to be a conversation with Barbara about laying off the divorce proceedings. When it escalated to violence, she got scared and hid in the bushes. In fact, she hid there so long that she saw the police and crime scene investigators arrive and waited there until she could escape without being seen. She then went back to Vegas and met up with Finch, and she claimed that she only knew Barbara had died when she heard about it on the radio. 
While on the stand, she contradicted her statements to investigators multiple times, and the entire testimony overall did her more harm than good. In the end, Carol was seen as a young woman who somehow allowed herself to get caught up in a barely planned out murder plot that she and Finch were just too dumb to get away with. The case went to the jury, and both Carol and Finch were facing the possibility of the death penalty. The prosecution was confident that they had the conviction in the bag, and by all accounts, they had successfully torn apart the defense during trial. So they were shocked when the jury deadlocked after eight days of deliberation. A retrial happened in June of 1960, just before the one-year anniversary of Barbara's murder. After five months, the second trial ended in another mistrial. This trial had just as many shocking moments as the first, when at one point the judge told the jury that he didn't find either defendant to be believable. A third trial began in early 1961, and it was far less eventful than the first two. Much of the sensational news coverage that swirled around the first two trials had moved on, and the jury easily found the two defendants guilty. Finch was found guilty of first-degree murder, while Carol was found guilty of a lesser charge of second-degree murder. They both evaded the death penalty, but they were sentenced to life in prison. Carol served eight years before being paroled in 1969. Her first appeal was denied, but she swayed the parole board on her second time around. Her appeals were covered in the press, and they noted a stark change from the quote, attractive redhead at trial. According to her lawyers, she had spent her time in prison trying to improve herself in preparation for her release. After being released from prison, Carol changed her name. This was a smart move for her, considering that she was barely 30 when she was released and could easily put her much-publicized affair ending in a murder behind her. Although she changed her name, it is believed that she is still alive and living in Southern California. Finch was paroled in 1971. He left California after he was released from prison, but he eventually returned to Southern California, where he lived until he passed away in 1995 at the age of 77. Finch and Carol were able to reestablish their lives after they served their prison sentences, but this opportunity was never afforded to Barbara and her two children, whose lives would never be the same after that night. Instead, they had their entire world uprooted at an unthinkably young age. And although it was their commitment to their illicit affair that upended their lives and landed them in prison, Finch and Carol's relationship effectively ended when their prison sentences were handed down. Despite being released within a couple of years of one another, they never rekindled their relationship. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to source material and further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode ad-free, then check out my Patreon. 
If you subscribe at the $3 per month level or higher, you can listen to this episode without any ad breaks. And thank you so much to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You helped make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And if you have a case that you would like to see covered, I recently added a case submission tab to my website. You'll find a link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners. So if you submit a case, I'll do my best to cover it on a future episode. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.